This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret's down to the wire. Just a few weeks left uh, for open enrollment on the insurance exchange. Well, that's right, Mark. And roughly a million more Americans signed up for insurance on the exchanges in February. That brings the latest count to 4.2 million enrollees. Still short of what the administration had wanted, which was close to $7 million by the end of March of this year. They certainly did. And the other number that's fallen short uh, as well is the so-called young invincibles. Only about a quarter of those who've signed up for insurance on the exchanges are between the ages of 18 and 34. A lower number of younger, healthier on those health insurance plans means premiums could go higher. But again, we have to wait for the data to come in. And there's still some remarkable numbers to note, despite some of those shortfalls. Close to a million people have signed up for coverage on the California exchange alone, and about a quarter million new enrollees in New York State. So these are pockets where the health care law is really having a huge impact. Well, uh, it should be noted the administration is really targeting those young invincibles. Margaret, I I noticed the president was on In Between the Ferns last night, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) there will be no low place or high place that he won't go (laughs) in trying to recruit people. Uh, and we will see how that works as we uh, draw close to the end of March. Well, you have to give the president credit for being willing to take some zingers. But on a more serious note, uh, some states are looking into the possibility of extending open enrollment for another month. Oregon is one. Their exchange uh, has had problems functioning perfectly, likely won't be fully operational during this time period. So they're hoping for another month from the Obama administration. And I think Nevada and New Mexico are asking for more time as well. In spite of these problems, uh, we could look at the glasses half full. There are now millions of Americans who are covered by health insurance and millions more who are covered under the Medicaid program. And that's bound to have a positive impact on the population's health over time. Right, because once these folks get into the healthcare system, Mark, hopefully they'll be able to get both prevention and timely treatment for their health concerns. Um, and each of those health concerns come with their own diagnosis code. So our guest today is an expert on health information management and medical coding. Now, most patients and our listeners won't notice a big change come October 1st, but there are big changes in store in something called the ICD-9 to ICD-10 conversion, a new coding system that is more complex, but also is going to give us much better information on the state of health of people. Lynn Thomas-Gordon, CEO of the American Health Information Management Association is going to fill us in on the switch to ICD-10. And that will lead to research on better outcomes in the future. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, is going to stop by uncovering misstatements made about health policy in the public domain. And remember, no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at CHC Radio or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Lynn Thomas-Gordon in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Backing off on Medicare Part D, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid is withdrawing part of its proposal for sweeping changes to the Medicare prescription drug program. Marilyn Taverner of the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare is saying they've listened to concerns from both sides of the aisle, as well as stakeholders in the medical and patient communities who came out strongly against those changes. The CMS plan would have limited the number of plans insurers could offer customers and greatly limit the drugs available to Medicare Part D consumers. CMS heard from numerous stakeholders in the patient community, pharmacy world, and politicians from both sides of the aisle crying foul over those changes. 
The health law's ongoing closing of the Part D donut hole, the gap in coverage where seniors pay the full cost of coverage before the plan's catastrophic cap kicks in, has reduced the need for plans offering enhanced benefits, according to CMS. The agency saying each region of the country now has on average nearly three dozen plans, and reducing that would help give beneficiaries more clarity about the differences among the plans. The White House is doing a full court press to amp up enrollment in the insurance exchanges before open enrollment ends March 31st. The so-called young invincibles have not turned out in numbers they had hoped. Of the 4.2 million who have signed up for health coverage under the Affordable Care Act, only about 25 percent are in that coveted 18 to 34-year-old group. So in addition to hiring thousands of new folks to help process the insurance signups, they're taking to the airwaves as well, advertising on shows popular among the millennial generation. President Obama even appeared on actor Zach Galifianakis's interview show parody Between Two Ferns to reach that target audience. New weapons on the AIDS front. Scientists have proven a newly developed gel can have a prophylactic effect against AIDS transmission, even when administered after intercourse has occurred. In an article in the journal Translational Science, scientists at the University of San Francisco revealed monkeys given a gel containing reltegravir, an FDA-approved drug for HIV, even after given a simian HIV Only one in six monkeys contracted HIV in the gel group. In a placebo group, all monkeys became infected. Researchers say this could provide a powerful tool for women exposed to sexual assault or other risk factors. And another study showed that when uninfected partners were given a low dose of antiretroviral drugs, it could inhibit transmission of the virus from infected partners. Human trials on that gel discovery are planned. Crohn's disease affects some million Americans who must suffer the pains and the indignity that accompany this intestinal disorder, which seems to start when an overactive immune system causes abdominal pain, diarrhea, bleeding, weight loss, and other symptoms. Many patients have to take powerful steroids, which have their own side effects, and some have parts of digestive tracts surgically removed. Mounting evidence has suggested that microbes living in the gut might contribute to the problem. A study at Mass General looked at the gut microbes of 1,500 Crohn's patients and found an abundance of bacteria that cause inflammation and a lack of the microbes that counterbalance that reaction. Interestingly, children whose doctors had tried to treat their Crohn's symptoms with antibiotics before they were properly diagnosed had a mix of microbes that was the most out of whack. It suggests they need to do more to find super probiotics to balance out those intestines of Crohn's patients. I'm Arianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Lynn Thomas-Gordon, Chief Executive Officer of the American Health Information Management Association, or AHIMA, the premier association of health information management professionals worldwide. AHIMA is working to advance the use of electronic health records and is one of the four cooperating parties responsible for the ICD-10 coding guidelines. Ms. Thomas-Gordon was also Chief Operating Officer of the Children's Hospital of Michigan and was a member of the Information Management Task Force of the Joint Commission. She earned her executive MBA at Georgia State University. Ms. Thomas Gordon, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. 
Thank you, Mark. It's really a pleasure to join you today to talk about ICD-10. Oh, Lynn, uh, we are glad to have you on. And we have been talking nonstop in our organization, as everybody has, about ICD-10. And uh, CMS Administrator Marilyn uh, Tavener, who's been on this show with us before, recently announced there would be no delay this year in the October 1st uh, transition date for switching to ICD-10 code standards in healthcare, and it's formally known as the 10th edition of the International Classification of Diseases. And maybe for our listeners, Lynn, who aren't familiar with the nation's system of healthcare coding, could you give us some history of the evolution of the coding system and how it drives healthcare systems? You know, to begin with, ICD-9 is really a coding classification system. So why do we have it? Well, it really allows for our healthcare providers to interpret mortality and morbidity data throughout the world. And I, I know this sounds a little crazy, but I like to compare it to a barcoding system in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. So think fruits and vegetables. Fruits have one code, vegetables have another. Well, it's the same with ICD-9, except that rather than coding produce, you're really coding diseases and procedures. And believe it or not, this system was developed in the United States in 1979, or 35 years ago. And if you just look at our iPhones today, which we never even heard of that long ago, well, healthcare has also had many, many changes. And so the diagnosis codes we are using, all healthcare providers use, and the procedure codes are specifically for hospital inpatient services. So although the coding for statistics and research was the original function of the system, in 1983, ICD-9 became the way that we communicated information for the purpose of reimbursement. So we used this system for many, many reasons. And in early 1990, we saw the need to replace ICD-9. And actually, it was brought up by the National Committee on vital and health statistics, and they basically said that ICD-9 was rapidly being outdated, and they recommended at that time that we move to ICD-10. And as you know, and everybody else knows, we have been very slow to move to this updated version, and believe it or not, today we are the only industrialized country not to be on this new system. That is kind of remarkable, and uh, I guess we can give a shout-out of reassurance to people. The rest of the world hasn't fallen apart in their conversion from ICD-9 <laughs> to ICD-10, and we aren't going to either. But I think this is one of those uh, interesting issues in healthcare where people might be looking at it on a very uh, business, bureaucratic, practice management basis. But for everyone who's really interested in population management and public health and really understanding whether what we're doing is making a difference, what's changing, it really provides us an incredible window. So tell us from that sort of broader health perspective, what what's really different? What does it mean to have a new classification system? And maybe we could pick pick one or two conditions, asthma or high blood pressure or anything that you'd like to speak to? Well, I think the most important thing for people to understand is that this updated coding system is really going to help us drive improvements in quality and reducing costs, which we know healthcare is a big cost to our country, and also really looking at our communities and how can we improve the health in our communities. And many people say, okay, so what are the big differences between ICD-10 and ICD-9? And what we're saying is that it's really more granular, it's more specific. And so by having that additional information, it's really going to be able to help us 
get out of this antiquated system and, and look at things differently. Specifically, I think most people would think if you go into the hospital and break your leg that you would know it's left or right, but we don't know that now with ICD-9. With ICD-10, we will be able to look at laterality. So there's an example for you. Lynn, CMS Administrator Tavener is not delayed it, and I'm sure uh, there were pools going on, not not just for <laughs> Ma- March Madness, but probably pools going on in hospitals and health centers, betting that uh, maybe they would delay it, uh, but the, all bets are off at this point. And your organization, AHIMA, is one of the four organizations chosen by CMS, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, to assist practices in making the switchover. And some have talked about this in the same way that we talked about uh, changing over our computer systems at the turn of the century here, 21st century, Y2K threat that we had. Uh, But tell everybody how complex you think this will be and who are some of the other organizations as well who are working on this and what's involved in making the transition to ICD-10? Well, I think as far as complexity, there are just a lot of moving parts. And you cannot change over this new system in a couple of days or even a couple of weeks. There really needs to be a concerted, planned effort to understand if you're a healthcare provider everywhere coding is being used. And you need to make sure that all those systems, depending on codes, are updated appropriately. And then in addition, the staff who assign codes, many of them, Uh, our members, they have to be trained on this new system. So it's not just something you just say, oh, I knew how to do ICD-9, now I know how to do ICD-10. There really does need to be training. And it impacts basically anybody that deals with healthcare, providers, payers, vendors, contractors, physicians, policymakers, educators, et cetera. So there's a lot involved in switching to ICD-10. And you asked what's involved. There needs to be user training. We need to upgrade our systems. I think it behooves everyone to make sure that they have good, strong policies and procedures in place. And one of the things many healthcare providers are doing, since it is much more specific and granular, many people are reaching out to their physicians and working with them to make sure that they have the best clinical documentation available which is then used to assign these codes. Lynn, certainly there's been some resistance. I think the AMA, the American Medical Association, uh, was one group that uh, resisted and said the cost of making the transition doesn't justify the change or that it's just too complicated. So let's talk about some of the opposition. Who's who's arguing for keeping the status quo? And I guess I might also, uh, I don't think we've, we've quite said it directly, there's the cost of making the transition, but the big fear is about whether your revenue is going to be impacted after October 1. Maybe you could address both of those things for us. Well, first of all, there's just opposition because it's change. I mean, let's face it. We are all comfortable with the current system, and so we're human, and we want to resist this. In addition, I think, as you know, healthcare is very complex, and all of us in this sector are extremely busy because we always have competing priorities, and as you mentioned, it's not a funded mandate. So despite all that, we at AHIMA and many, many other stakeholders feel that the long-term benefits of having a more robust and current coding system far outweigh any of the pushback we're getting. And I, I sometimes say no pain, no gain. We do know that it's something that is, is needed. It's been needed for a long time. And it's almost scary to know that there's so much going on in healthcare that we can't code for today. 
Uh, we're speaking today with Lynn Thomas-Gordon, Chief Executive Officer of the American Health Information Management Association, or HEMA, the premier association of health information management professionals uh, worldwide. HEMA is working to advance the use of electronic health records, and it's one of the four cooperating parties responsible for the ICD coding guidelines. Lynn, with the transition to ICD-10 in October, we're going to be, as you mentioned earlier, quadrupling the number of medical codes available to be used by the healthcare system. And it stands to reason that uh, there might be some uh, bottles being popped in research centers uh, who are going to have a lot more uh, detailed population health data to mine as a result. Um, and you were just talking a little earlier uh, a minute ago with Margaret about those who were opposed it. But there have to be a lot of people who are very excited about this, the way that it's going to impact uh, research in other areas. Maybe walk through not only how the data might be impacting population health, but also the other advocates out there who have been pining away for this uh, conversion to happen. I think a huge benefit of changing systems will be for the research community. And the reason for that is because the new codes do allow for more detail, what we often call more granular information. And if you go back to my grocery store analogy, if you were someone that worked in a grocery store and you were looking back at all everything you sold retrospectively or anything you wanted to order in the future, you would probably prefer to know that it wasn't just a fruit that you needed to look at, but an apple or even more specifically a red delicious apple. So we definitely in healthcare want the latter. We want that greater specificity. And so I think common sense just tells us why having this much more robust system will immensely help researchers and others when they're studying population health. Well, then you mentioned a few moments ago that uh, people are kind of change adverse, and we certainly see that not just in healthcare, but everywhere. But we do seem in healthcare to be particularly uh, riding the wave of a sea of changes. Uh, electronic health records, you know, more than halfway there on the practice side uh, with adoption of electronic health records. Uh, hospitals, I think, are about 80% transitioned over, but also coming right at us, the uh, HIPAA. Uh, 5010 requirements that are going to be taking effect, a new uh, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, fifth edition, and we've got ICD-10. So lots of change, lots of platforms, and of course, they all interrelate, I guess. How do they interrelate? Or from your perspective, how do all of these things uh, interrelate? And quite frankly, how do they all uh, complicate things for people in practicing in healthcare today? Well, I think, as I said before, we do have a lot going on in in the healthcare sector. Um, actually, 5010 is very important because it makes the way for ICD-10 to be transmitted to payers. So it is important that we <clears throat> look at that. And as for DSM-5, psychologists will actually need to have familiarity with ICD-10 because even when using DSM-5, your diagnosis must be reported in terms of ICD-10 codes in order that they have appropriate codes and that they can get paid for their services. Lynn, I should have asked you this earlier. Uh, Ahima, <laughs> tell us what the other work that you're engaged in around the world and how is it structured? Who Who's a member of Ahima and how long has it been around? Ahima, oh goodness, we have been around, believe it or not, for 86 years. We have over 71,000 members. We do have global members as well, not as many, but in the United States, uh, 
huge organization, uh, many people working across the healthcare sector in probably 60 different job types and up to 40 different settings. Wow, that's a pretty complicated organization. And I would imagine there's some futuristic thinking going on as well as people uh, ride that uh, sea of changes. There's also the need to look forward. And I'm thinking about uh, two areas and just be interested in your speculation on these. Uh, One, you know, ICD-11 coming up, possibly. And what's the... uh, the thought around including much more of the social determinants of health, right? So we know that uh, low income or low literacy level, low education, all of those things have an impact on health. Do you envision this becoming part of what we code uh, in the future? And I guess the second part of that speculation about the future, do you anticipate that the advance of personalized medicine and genomic medicine will lead to another uh, need to do a, a major upgrade and adaptation? I think those are all really good questions, and what we want to make sure is that as we adopt or develop, actually, and then adopt ICD-11, that we make sure that we consider all of the things that you mentioned. Right now, the World Health Organization is developing ICD-11, and the wonderful thing about it is that they're actually utilizing a web-based platform that allows experts and everyday users to participate in the revision. So as they learn uh, where things are happening and what's important to us, when we look at population or community health, they can include those in the final output. It is being revised to really better reflect the progress in health sciences and medical practices. So yes, I predict that anything from personal genome information as well as other things that are important to us as healthcare providers will be included. To me, it's just so exciting that morbidity and mortality classification information can be collected across the globe so that as patients and healthcare organizations, we can make sure that we achieve the triple aim, which is to drive down costs, improve community health, and of course, the most important thing, really looking at the quality of care we receive. You're absolutely right. I want to pick up on that first one of of cost. Certainly, you're not going to get reimbursed if in November you're not using ICD-11. Is that true? Uh, For those practices that are out there, what happens to people who don't make the conversion? Well, we, uh, yes, you need to have that coding system in place to get reimbursed because it's October 1st. It is a go. And so we are encouraging anybody that's using the coding system for reimbursement to make sure they're doing dual coding beginning in July so they can start being very comfortable with it so that when that October 1st date comes around, they can push those bills out the door with no change except changing to the new system. So it'll be easy and it will be very comfortable to their staff. Well, I think we have uh, a lot of interesting things to look forward to on October 1. We're just wrapping up our first couple of months of the intense focus being uh, getting people insurance in the first place uh, so that uh, they can get the care, and we'll move on to the ICD-10 implementation uh, shortly. We've been speaking today with Lynn Thomas-Gordon, Chief Executive Officer of the American Health Information Management Association, or AHIMA, the premier association of health information management professionals worldwide on the upcoming transition from ICD-10 
ICD-9 to ICD-10 coding in the healthcare industry. You can learn more about their work by going to ahima.org. That's A-H-I-M-A.org. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today, and good luck shepherding us all into this transition. Thank you so much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid wrongly blamed the conservative group Americans for Prosperity for promoting a false story of a woman who said her insurance premiums went up $700 per month. AFP didn't actually feature that woman's story in any of its ads. In a floor speech, Reed was highly critical of brothers David and Charles Koch, owners of the oil and manufacturing company Koch Industries and major funders of Americans for Prosperity, a 501c4 founded by David Koch. The group is behind a lot of advertising against the Affordable Care Act. Reed cited two stories he said were untrue and being promoted by Americans for Prosperity ads, but only one was in an AFP ad. He went on to say that Republicans were making up stories out of, quote, whole cloth, but neither of his anecdotes was fabricated. They had some basis in fact. There was the woman in Spokane who said her and her husband's premiums were going up nearly $700 a month. It turned out that that was one option given to her by her insurer, while another option would have been $500 more, and she acknowledged that she could probably save more on the state insurance exchange but wouldn't go on the website. Reed's other example was featured in an AFP ad in which a leukemia patient from Michigan says her insurance was canceled and her new plan's out-of-pocket costs were unaffordable. She later told the Detroit News that her new premiums were 50% lower, and the newspaper found she would save at least $1,200 a year on her new plan, even if her out-of-pocket expenses reached the plan's maximum. But still, Reed went way too far in his claims about AFP and the stories the group has promoted. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. The U.S. boasts among the highest rates of teen births in the world's industrialized nations. And while those numbers have been declining in recent years, it's still a significant health issue in this country. According to a recent study, the decline in teen birth rates in this country can be attributed in part to the launch of the popular MTV show, 16 and Pregnant, and the subsequent Teen Mom. MTV launched the series in 2009 to show the challenges and harsh realities of teen pregnancy and 
Teen Parenthood, working in partnership with the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. Researchers at the University of Maryland and Wellesley College conducted an empirical study to determine what, if any, impact the shows had on the decline of teen pregnancy and birth. Wellesley College economist Philip Levine found that much of the decline in recent years is the result of the Great Recession, but that it didn't account for all of the decline. They decided to utilize Google Data Tracker and Twitter activity around the airing of the shows, which developed a loyal following and consistently high ratings since the show began in 2009. So they called the Nielsen rating data. We look to see people searching for things like, how do I get birth control? And it's, you know, it's remarkable how people respond to the show, do things like you know, tweet and search about things that they're watching on TV as they're watching it and immediately following. So you see these enormous spikes in activity about 16 and pregnant the day the episode airs. You just see this huge spike in activity, and that also tends to correlate with people doing things like searching and tweeting about birth control. More interestingly were the social media conversations surrounding themes explored on the show, loss of freedom, the fathers of the baby often removing themselves from the picture, and so on. Themes that really drove the challenge of teen motherhood home to millions of young, vulnerable viewers. The important point about watching the show is that it really illustrates the life choices that these girls have made uh, and what outcomes it has on their lives in a way that a reality TV show can do that a public service announcement or a sex education teacher or some other form of communication can't really accomplish. And in that way, it can have a really meaningful impact on viewers. Based on the data they compiled, they determined the show led to a 5.7% drop in teen births from 2009 to 2012, a significant number in the relatively short period of time. The study, Media Influences on Social Outcomes, the Impact of MTV's 16 and Pregnant on Teen Childbearing, can be found in the National Bureau of Economic Research. MTV says this aligns with their goal of the show, which was to utilize their trusted media platform to reach a vulnerable sector of their audience and educate them about the potential hazards of risky behavior in a format they understood, reality TV. A media outlet utilizing airwaves to reveal the risk of teen pregnancy, thus creating a platform for dialogue for teens to address this potentially life-changing event, leading to a significant reduction in teen pregnancy. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.